So the reasoning behind beginning our time with discussion and the reasoning behind uh, like your homework during the week is because our desire for these studies is to create an active learning environment. And what we mean by that is that, so imagine on a Sunday, it's very unlikely that you come in to this building having already studied the passage. I mean, you probably don't even know what the passage is yet, right? And so you come in not quite knowing what to expect, walk in, we sing, we stand, we sit, and you sit there and receive uh, passively. Hopefully it turns into actively throughout the week, but uh, passively in that environment so that we can then go and live this out. What we want to do with an active learning environment is kind of flip the script on that so that when we come into this context, we've already wrestled with the text. We've already read through it multiple times and, and have begun to ask questions and be confused and not quite know, like, like why, why did or didn't it say this and what does this mean, like having already gone through it so that we're an active participant when we come into this context. And so then when we get into our uh, smaller discussion groups, we can kind of wrestle with the text together and those discussion questions will hopefully set you up for some good discussion. So this is why it's important that if you really want to get something out of this study, to actually take the, the study guide seriously. If you're anything like me, it's like, oh man, it's Thursday and now I'm making up, you know, four days at once, right? That's fine. Really, the whole point is to get you thinking about the text and reading the text before we come in to this, to this context. Because, uh, Really the goal, and, and, and this is like, these men's and women's studies, I'm, it, it's really, it's a Trojan horse, okay? Like, no, no secrets. The whole goal of this isn't ultimately so that we would know the book of Jonah better. That'll be great, but the whole goal for these studies as we do this together is so that we would actually learn how to read our Bibles for ourselves, so whether it's Jonah, whether it's another minor, anywhere you're at in the Bible, and that's why we've structured this study with the comprehension, interpretation, application, because we think that's a really great process for when August 1st comes and we're no longer meeting, you know, super early on a Tuesday, when you sit down at your kitchen table and open up your Bible, we hope that we have built up a kind of muscle memory over this last month so that we can approach our Bibles uh, with a little bit more confidence, actually knowing how to read it for ourselves. So that's the goal. Uh, I, you, you've seen the wizard behind the curtain now, okay? So hopefully we'll learn a lot about Jonah, but more so I hope that we learn how to, how to study our Bibles for ourselves. So for this first week, we're, we're looking at Jonah chapter 1. If you didn't watch the intro video, I'd encourage you to go back and watch the intro video. And we give a little background about what a prophet is, about what a minor prophet is, and a little background on the book of Jonah. What, one quick thing, because you might get confused. Uh, I, I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version uh, anytime that I teach. <laughs> it's mainly because I love these little, uh, what are these even called? like scripture journals, so you can go on Amazon or Lifeway or whatever and get, like, this is Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, just those books, and there's, like, a section to write, you know. I just like the format, so that's why I'm using the translation. So that's what I'm going to be in this morning as we walk through Jonah. Um, and what we're going to do in these teaching portions, uh, my goal is to get you out of here by 7 o'clock. I know a lot of you have to go to work here. Um, 
We're not going to end with discussion. We're going to end with prayer together, actually. So my, my goal in these, in, these, in these teaching times is more to act like a tour guide. And so we're going to just walk through the chapter, and I'm going to kind of like pull over the bus along the way and just point out some things that I personally thought was interesting in my own study uh, in prayer through, through Jonah. So hopefully some of this is helpful. It's not going to be exhaustive. It's likely that I won't cover something that maybe you thought was interesting, um, but maybe next time you'll be up here doing it. So... Uh, uh, and then you can go over that. So Jonah chapter one. Um, the book of Jonah, as we mentioned in the intro video, is pretty unique when it, uh, when it comes to the minor prophets and a prophetic book in general in the sense uh, that it's narrative. And so it's written as, as a straight up story and in the sense that it's, that it's biographical or really autobiographical because it's very likely that Jonah was the one to write the book of Jonah, which when we get to chapter four, that's going to be like, just imagine writing these things about your own response, you know, to what God has done in Nineveh. But uh, that, that makes Jonah a fairly unique book when it comes to the minor prophets. Um, Another kind of interesting thing, and, and part of the reason why we wanted to take Jonah and, and set it aside for a study like this was because it's probably the most, uh, the most known, but not well-known prophetic book in the Bible, right? So, so we're sitting last, this last, uh, not today, last Tuesday, my wife and I and my daughter, so Naomi's eight, were sitting at the, at the kitchen table, and Naomi saw, you know, the booklet, and, and she, wanted, she wants to go through this study with us. We're like, that's great. And so she's sitting there. We're all reading, you know, Jonah, uh, Jonah 1. I'm catching up, so I'm reading the whole book in one sitting, and she's doing the same. And she, <laughs> she gets to chapter 3, and she stops and says, hey, wait a second, why do children's Bibles only do chapters one and two? Like, if, if, if you don't have kids, it's like every children's Bible I have read uh, goes through Jonah and makes it about uh, either about a disobedient man or a whale or both, okay? And it generally the stories end, because it's a children's Bible, so they make them shorter. Generally the story ends with Jonah being spit up on the beach and he goes to Nineveh. And that's where it stops. Maybe they, maybe they go to chapter three, but certainly not chapter four. I thought that was just such a fascinating observation from an eight-year-old. Hey, why do the Bibles that I have read and been read from most of my life, why do they only stop halfway? I thought that was a fantastic observation here, because what we're going to see really is that the story of Jonah isn't primarily about a whale or a great fish, and it isn't primarily about great disobedience. The book of Jonah is primarily about a great God, a great merciful God, not about a disobedient prophet, but about a merciful king. And so the events of Jonah most likely took place within the time frame of the book of 2 Kings around the 8th, 8th century. So Jeroboam the second, uh, you'll, you'll remember on day three of your study guide, you read 2 Kings chapter 14, where God spoke to Jonah, through Jonah to Jeroboam in order to restore Israel's border and deliver Israel uh, from, from oppression. In 2 Kings chapter 4, it says, it says he, Jeroboam, restored Israel's border from uh, Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of, of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. 
and spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, from Gath Hefer. Verse 26, for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter for both slaves and free people. There was no one to help Israel. So here we have Jonah, the prophet of the Lord. He's sent by God to the rebellious leader of a rebellious people. So King Jeroboam, King Jeroboam a rebellious leader, because we see in, in verse 24 of 2 Kings 14, he, Jeroboam, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, from, from all the sins Jeroboam, son of Nabat, had caused Israel to commit. So rebellious leader, rebellious people, God sees these people and the affliction that they're under because of their rebellion, and he tells Jonah to go deliver his message to the king so that Israel's borders would be restored and the nation would be brought out of oppression. So Jonah delivers the Lord's message to them so that his people would flourish, all right? That's really, really key in understand and be, in putting within a context the book of Jonah because now, fast forward a little bit. This, this happened later. Jonah chapter one, the Lord comes to this same Jonah in Jonah one, see verse one. Now the, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, same guy. Now if this was just Jonah in general, you could go, well, it's probably just some other Jonah. No, same guy, same dad that we saw in 2 Kings. And he says this in verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Go to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was, which was pretty well known for its violence and its brutality, especially toward their enemies. And so uh, one example of this brutality uh, is that it, they... they they turned violence into a, not just a sport, but also into a game. And here's how. So one example would be that when, when Assyria would overtake an enemy and bring the captives, the, like their captors, into the city of Nineveh, the capital city, what they would, sometimes what they would do is they would cut off both of their legs. They're still alive. Cut off both of their legs and cut off one of their arms, and you go, why one of their arms? This, this sounds like a Monty Python thing. It's like one of their arms. The reason why they'd leave another arm was so that, was so that they, could shake the, they, they could shake their hand while they were dying, like mocking them, like, oh, it's nice to meet you, right before they would bleed out and die. Like this is the Assyrian people in the way that they saw their enemies, in, in that their violence wasn't just a sport, it was humorous to them to torture people in these kinds of ways. And here we have a Jewish prophet being told by God to go to this hostile pagan Gentile nation. Probably, it's hard to find similarities in our day, but probably the closest thing maybe we could get modern day would be a, uh, a Jewish priest being told to go into Berlin in the 1940s and call out against the people, call out against the nation of Germany. And you go, that's probably not going to end well for that priest, right? But that is the kind of like absurdity that this call of God would have sounded like in the ears of Jonah. But God says, arise and go to Nineveh, verse 3. But Jonah rose. So Jonah did rise. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, we're not told yet at least in chapter one, we're not told yet exactly why Jonah 
fled, but you can kind of put yourself in Jonah's shoes at this point, because why in the world would God call you, uh, would God tell you to go to this uh, violent, pagan, enemy city and call out against them if there weren't any chance of repentance. I mean, at this point, it's like, well, what's the point of the call if there is absolutely no possibility of a response? And so Jonah, probably putting these like kind of like logical dots together, uh, sees that my obedience possibly, at least, and he's probably like unlikely, but possibly could lead to their repentance. No thanks, I'm out of here. So what happens is Jonah goes, yeah, That's a, that's a great question. I think, that, I think that Jonah was placed, so the question was, uh, was this book written uh, after he became a prophet or was this kind of his first prophetic calling, you'd say? Is that the right way to say it? Yeah. I think that this likely happened after uh, he had already uh, done what he had done in 2 Kings chapter 14. So that's kind of the framework that I'm working in here as far as the timeline goes. That's a great question. Um, so what Jonah does is that he goes the exact opposite direction. You'll remember in your study guide, I always make fun of my wife because she loves maps. And so she's the one that found these maps. But at the, at the beginning of your study guide on the back of the cover, uh, you'll see that Nineveh, so Joppa, Nineveh is 550 miles east, mostly by land, right? Tarshish is 2,500 miles west, mostly by sea. Which, not only was, was Tarshish probably the edge of the known world for the, the people of Israel, right? I mean, you can see on the map, and you can kind of, like, see why they would think, like, man, that is, that is probably, quote-unquote, the ends of the earth, like, going to the edge of the world. Uh, but it's mostly by sea, which in the Bible, when you see, uh, when we see the, the ocean, the sea, um, pretty much anything to do with water. Sometimes what we think of is like, oh, cool, it's by the sea. It's like, a, like this is like vacations and margaritas. Like, oh, nice, like beachfront property kind of thing. No, but for, which for us may, might make sense, but for them, the, the sea, water, uh, represented chaos. The sea represented death. Like, if you went out to sea, the only reason why you would have come back in, in the ancient world's mind, the only reason why you would have survived a voyage at sea was because you were either incredibly strong or because you were incredibly lucky. Because the sea was incredibly tumultuous. It was, it was unpredictable. You would never know what was going to happen. And so the sea was generally an image of chaos and death. And so what, in essence, what Jonah is saying when he jumps on a boat, instead of going 550 miles by land, he goes 2,500 miles by sea. What he's saying is, I'd rather risk my life at sea on my way to the edge of the earth than go to those people. I'd rather put myself in harm's way than even have the possibility for them to be put in the way of God's grace. Never mind the fact, and this is where the timeline thing comes in, never mind the fact that, that he was more than happy to go to his own rebellious king, to his own rebellious people, to declare the word of the Lord to evil Jeroboam, whose warfare benefited 
Jonah and his people, but those savage Ninevites, no way. No way. Of course it's God's will that they'd be destroyed. So since, so, so since I can't find a good reason why God would send me to Nineveh, I'm not going to Nineveh, all right? So he goes down to Joppa, which is a port town. You'll see there on your map. And then here in verse 3, <clears throat> he found a ship going to Tarshish. Verse 3. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. How utterly convenient that the minute that Jonah wants to flee from the presence of the Lord to avoid going to the people that God had called him to go to, how convenient. I go to Joppa, and there's a boat. Like, <laughs> if you're Jonah, isn't it possible that uh, if, 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 I'm, if I'm using my own uh, line of reasoning here, if I'm trying to find a way to get out of what God wants me to do, it would be very easy for me to see that ship and go, well, it, because the way out is so convenient, then God must maybe be fine with this. Like, why in the world would God provide a boat if he really, really, really didn't want me to go this way, but wanted me to go this way. You see, it's very easy when you aren't being directed by the word of God to be directed by your own experiences, to be directed by your gut feelings, or to be directed by the, by the simple events of your life, the quote-unquote coincidences, right? Here, here's, here's how this might work. How convenient that this coworker that I work very, very closely with is both attractive and interested in me, while at the same time my wife is always sexually unavailable. How convenient. I mean, doesn't God want me to be fulfilled? Or if, if, I, were, if I were a greedy person, then why would God put me in a position at a job that provides so abundantly for me? Like, why would he do that? So surely I can't be greedy because, because my, my wealth must be a confirmation of my godliness. Men, don't mistake in convenient outlets for acting on your desires as God's providential way of confirming your desires. Like, how convenient that though I'm out of town, the porn on my phone is everywhere. Like, don't mistake in the convenience of something as God's, like, as God's way of confirming you acting on your desires, especially when it is very clear that God has clearly spoken. To Jonah, this was a direct speaking. Go to Nineveh. To us, we have the very word of God, the spoken breath of God. And if we aren't going to be guided by the word of God, what's going to end up happening is that we'll end up being guided by our gut feelings. And it is so easy when you're, do, when you're doing that to convince yourself that something that is convenient is also right. We must be guided by the word of God. So verse four. So he jumps into a boat. Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened 
to break up. We had you highlight repetitive words as you went through your study guide, and so you probably highlighted great several times. Like, there was a great wind, a great tempest, and you see, since, since Jonah refused to go to that great city, he would endure a great storm. He refused to go to that great city, so he would endure a great storm. Don't, don't, be, don't be fooled, men. Sin always has consequences. It always does. Even if it feels like in the moment, you're getting away with it. Even if it feels like, well, I've, I've been hiding this thing for years. Like, I've actually gotten really, really good at keeping this part of my life in the shadows. Don't be fooled. Sin always has consequences. I, I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says that the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin. But it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. Every difficulty you have isn't always a result of sin. But make no mistake, all sin will lead you into great difficulty. You see, suffering in this life is always because of sin in general. I think we've talked about this before. Suffering is always a result of sin in general, but isn't always a result of sin in particular. And and notice how this plays itself out in this first chapter of Jonah. So at the same time that this, so Jonah gets on the boat, fleeing from the Lord, a great storm comes up because Jonah wouldn't go to the city. The great storm comes directly as a result of Jonah's sin. And at the same time, the sailors on the boat are enduring the same storm. But it's not a result, a direct result, of their sin. Here's what this means. (laughs) I, I, I I wanna say this as clearly as possible. Uh, this means that when it comes to suffering in this life, that there is, that there is no collateral damage. Because notice how this works. Uh, two categories of people. Jonah, direct opposition to God, suffering the storm directly because of sin. Sailors, just doing their thing. Also suffering the same storm. It wasn't like God was doing something purposeful with Jonah and not at the same time doing something purposeful with the sailors. That even in the storm that the sailors were suffering, not as a result of their own sin, God was doing something very directly. And we see, we'll see this at the end of chapter one. That it's, I mean, you have to imagine, had that storm not come, had that not turned out the way that it turned out by the end of chapter one, would those sailors have ever become worshipers of Yahweh? Maybe, but maybe not. And so God is able to sovereignly direct even the consequences of someone else's sin to produce something good in your life, even as you suffer the consequences of someone else's sin. There is no collateral damage when it comes to suffering in this life. So verse 5. Verses 5 through 10. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, 
What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we, so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where are you from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Do you see the, you see the irony of what's happening here, right? So Jonah, who is on the run, he's desperately avoiding, he's desperately trying to avoid talking to pagans about God, finds himself on a boat talking to pagans about God. <laughs> like, like, he can't get away from it. Like, one way or another, he is, he is going to talk to pagans about the Lord, right? And they beg him to call out to God, which there is no indication, at least in the text, that he actually does, even though they're begging him to. They're begging him to call out to God in order to keep the storm from tearing apart their boat and killing all of them. So this prophet, who was supposed to go with a message that would result in pagans calling out to God, now it's the pagans using the Lord's language to get Jonah to call out to the Lord. You see that? They come down and find him sleeping. Arise. The same word that God uses for Jonah in the, at the very beginning of the chapter. They're using the Lord's language to call out to Jonah to arise. Call out to your God. Do you see how upside down this is? Like you, you, that, the, the study guide isn't a typo on the front there, right? Like the upsetting being, that probably, that, I know that drives some of you guys nuts. Maybe like you engineers in particular, you're like, no, that's not right. <laughs> like that wasn't a typo, you know? It's like everything we're gonna see in the book of Jonah seems flipped on its head. It goes against what you would, what you would expect, right? The prophet of God fleeing while the pagans are desperately wanting to call out to this God so that their suffering could be alleviated. Jonah is full of expectations turned on its head. Verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It's very possible that we're, that, that we're so familiar with this story that we kind of gloss over this. But do you see, like Jonah knows. He knows why this is happening. He knows what it will take to stop it. And yet, it's the pagan sailors who have to continually like pry it out of him. Like, he's not just giving up this information without first having to be asked it, right? I mean, if you are in a, a boat that is about to go down because of the raging sea, and you know exactly why it's happening and how to stop it, would that not be top of mind? Like, here's what we can do. Like, why in the world do these guys have to keep, like, pulling this information out of him? Do you see how likely it is? Do, do, and the, the reason why we can say this now is because we know the end of the story, right? Do you see how likely it is that Jonah had such a disregard for these people 
who weren't like him, whether, whether, they were, whether they were Ninevites or just pagan sailors, that there was such a disregard for them that it didn't really matter to him what happened to them. But when it came to his nation, his people, he was all on board. But when it came to those people over there, not interested. We see this from 2 Kings. Didn't need a whole lot of prodding. Called to go give the message, went and gave the message. His people, his kingdom, in distress, needs rescuing, needs God's help, went and did it. These people... These sinners, not so unlike rebellious Israel, in the same situation, yeah, it it looked different. Us, it's fine. I I want God's blessing, would love God's help. For them, nah. I'm I'm not trying, and I'm aware of the ironic timing of this, okay, okay. and I'm a guy that usually puts a lot of asterisks and caveats to want to be clearly understood. I'm not going to do that because I need a lot of them. Um, I looked up the definition of nationalism. <clears throat> and here's what it is. Identification with one's own nation and support for its interests. That's, that's great. No problem with that. The problem is when the second half of the definition comes in. Especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. That's where the problem comes in, guys. We we bought fireworks, we grilled out. It was great over on Sunday. Celebrating the free, explaining uh, the blessing that it is to live in America to our children, explaining to them the history of our nation, at least in a way that an eight and five year old could understand, uh, so that we could pray and thank God for the freedoms that we have. Like, praise God for where we live. But make no mistake, we are citizens of another land. That our primary allegiance, while while America is fantastic, our, primarily, our primary allegiance is to a king of a different kingdom. That this world is not our home. We are, we, are, we are citizens of a heavenly nation. We're just passing through that. We are to be sojourners in this land. That we aren't to establish for ourselves houses made of brick. But we're to live in, in quote-unquote tents as we, are, as we are nomads on this earth. Guys, Don't let your patriotism, which is great, your appreciation for this nation, which is awesome, don't let that turn into a kind of nationalism that that you are so concerned about America's interests that that it's to the exclusion of everybody else's. So verse 12. They ask him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Verse 12. Finally, we get to the answer. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So you want it to stop? Throw me in. Kill me. At this point, Jonah has no clue that God has arranged other travel plans once he hits the water, right? So in his mind, he's like, well, if you throw me in, I'm going to die. Throw me in. I'll die. The sea will calm for you. Verse 13. This is wild. Verse 13. Nevertheless... So they already have the answer. 
You'd think they'd be rushing through it. Like the sentence shouldn't have left his mouth before he's just falling into the sea. But nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more tempestuous against them. So what a contrast we see in these pagan sailors, that, that those, that they're doing everything they can to save and spare the life of this prophet, which is an utter contrast to Jonah's disposition both towards the Ninevites and also toward them. That these pagans would be more concerned about his life than he is of theirs. Verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, he says this in Matthew 12, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Then he turns to them and says, And behold, a greater, something greater than Jonah is here. See, what Jesus does in the New Testament and what we're to see in the book of Jonah is not a great whale and it's not a disobedient prophet. What we are to see is a foreshadowing. We're, we're, we're to pick up hints of echoes of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, that, that while Jonah is the self-centered prophet, Jesus is the sacrificial savior, that while Jonah was plunged into the waves so that the storm would cease and pagans would become worshipers of Yahweh, Jesus was also thrown into the tempest of God's wrath so that you and I, those of us who are far off, would be brought into the family of God and become worshipers of Yahweh. You see, while Jonah had a self-righteous indignation for the other, God's heart for the other is on full display. From the wicked Ninevites, the unsuspecting sailors, God's heart has always been that salvation would go to the nations. This is precisely what he promised to Abraham in Genesis Chapter 22, he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Yes, I have chosen Israel by my own good pleasure to be my chosen nation, but this chosen nation was not meant to be the sole recipients of God's blessing, but that through you would come a blessing to the nations, that Abraham, through your seed, through the one who would come, you would be a blessing to the nations. So that in Christ, those who are the other, do you realize this? We are the other. We are the ones who are so unlike God, so different than God. We are the foreigners. And God had every right to disregard us, every right to throw us into the storm of his wrath. And yet Jesus Christ came and threw himself overboard so we could be restored to God you see, while Jonah ran from those unlike him, Jesus ran 
toward them. He ran toward us. Men, is there anyone in your life that you think of as the other? Anyone, in, any, anyone that comes to mind, it, it, could be a, it could be a specific person, it could be a group of people, it could be a kind of person, a caricature, if you will. Any kind of person that you're like, really rather not. I don't want to deal with them. I don't want to mess with them. They're so different than me. They think so different than me. They, they like different things than I like. They vote differently than me. They believe different things. Ah, just, nah. I mean, I'm not saying they're a waste of time, but is there anyone like that? Oh, would God rid us of any hint of pride? Jordan just preached about this two days ago. Would God rid us of any hint of superiority, of any elitism, of any, of any kind of nationalism that is incredibly unhealthy? But would we be filled with a view, would our view be filled with the beauty of Jesus Christ, our true and greater Jonah, who was buried beneath God's wrath and risen three days later, to proclaim good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind and to set the captives free. You and me, our true and greater Jonah, Jesus Christ, came for us, the other.